Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon, and I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. There's a report that NATO allies split on whether to talk with President Putin and what weapons to give Ukraine. Germany and France favor diplomacy with Russia, while other NATO members are discouraging it. For insight into this, we turn to our first guest. He's an international relations and security analyst based in Moscow, Mark Schloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the Critical Hour. So Bloomberg reports, as NATO allies discuss the terms of any potential peace deal to be struck between Russia and Ukraine, signs of strategic splits are emerging from within their ranks. A series of dilemmas are coming into sharp focus over which conditions could be deemed acceptable by Ukraine for any accord, especially as regards the security guarantees alliance members might be able to offer Kiev. There are also divergencies over whether or what further weapons to send Ukraine and on the question of whether talking to Putin is helpful or not. Mark, I can only figure that at some point you're going to have to talk to President Putin. I would think the sooner you talk with him, the better. And it really seems as though you have outside forces. When I say outside, I mean outside of the Ukraine in particularly the United States, injecting their interests into this conflict. So it's a matter of uh, there's a fight going on in your backyard. I don't even live in the neighborhood, and I'm trying to tell you how to how to how to how to solve the problem. Mark Sloboda. Yeah, I think it's really touching that that European states are disagreeing amongst themselves on which conditions should be acceptable for their client state regime in Kiev. That's that's I, I find that particularly touching that they're they're deciding which which conditions Zelensky can accept and which ones he can't. And and they're disagreeing on that. You know, they've really they've really got to get together on that because <laughs> otherwise they, they they will be sending mixed messages uh, to to their client state in Kiev. Um, yeah, I, I think it's really I mean, I, it's obvious that there are divisions in NATO. I mean, I, uh, the uh, government of Hungary, which has been, you know, uh, kind of the uh, strongest loner among NATO and EU countries dissenting from uh, a lot of uh, common opinions on Russia. Uh, the government of Viktor Orban just accused the Kiev regime of meddling in Hungarian politics. Uh, Orban has an election uh, coming up here shortly, and he accused Kiev of coordinating with the Hungarian opposition um, and trying to unseat him. So that that just adds some fuel fuel to the fire. But you know, it's obvious that there are at least some differences between the mainstream European countries. And and the the hawks on Russia, represented by Poland, the Baltics, and the UK, but I think it's kind of a moot point because 
the uh, Russian government, uh, the the uh, speaking from the president's office, been, has been quite clear that the, the West has no business in these negotiations between uh, Kiev uh, and and Russia. They, they, they just have no business uh, and nothing that they can say or can contribute uh, to the discussion is going to in any way positively affect it, an outcome. Uh, yeah, you know, Mark, and I think it comes down to this. The U.S. empire and its, its you know, extensions in, in, in Europe have created and has created an environment where um, Ukraine is really kind of an unregulated territory. I mean, as, to me, as far as. Um, even Zelensky having agency either inside or outside of um, of Ukraine is patently absurd to me. It's obvious this guy's just a, you know, if you ever saw Iron Man 3, the Mandarin, just a guy that they stick in front of a green screen and pretend that he's the leader and he's not. And um, I think and that, that and add this to. They signed the Minsk Accords one and two, and you know they signed deal after deal. Why, even if the if NATO and the U.S. was involved anyway, you know they jumped out of the Iran deal. What reason would the Russians have to believe that before the ink was dry on the deal, they'd be pumping missiles and weapons back into whatever is left of Ukraine in the first place, Mark? Yeah, I, I think Russia has a very good reason to uh, not only doubt uh, Western countries, uh, but uh, their, you know, uh, client state in Kiev itself. I mean, we have already seen uh, the February 21st agreement in 2014 that was supposed to be a power sharing agreement uh, over the Maidan reached uh, between the democratically elected president, uh, uh, Yanukovych, uh, with the political opposition, uh, was signed with the European states as guarantors. And the next day, uh, by the next day, the far right uh, contingent on the Maidan had been making threats about Yanukovych, drove him out of the capital, seized control of the Rada and the uh, presidential complex uh, by the next morning. And then uh, essentially it was only a matter of time before Yanukovych had to flee the country. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it's often presented as, oh, well, he's no longer the president because he fled the country. Yes, because there were far right battalions <laughs> uh, that had killed dozens of police, uh, you know, set on uh, finishing him one way or another as well. And this was obviously openly signed to on the West. Then we had two rounds of the Minsk Accords, which uh, European powers, uh, Kiev re regime refused to fulfill um, even after it was bound in a UN Security Council resolution and became international law. And the European states along with the U.S. propping it up and arming it, refused to push it to fulfill it. So uh, I think Russia really has to be careful in negotiations here. Um, they can only uh, you know, trust the regime in Kiev and the West from a position of total strength, which would mean de facto battlefield results, right? Results on the ground. Because otherwise, uh, you know, nothing they say or sign to can really be trusted. And uh, the state, the way these negotiations are going with the Russian uh, presidential uh, spokesman Peskov saying yesterday that the most positive thing is that the regime in Kiev has finally put down some of their proposals on paper. 
that, that doesn't strike me as as any real great accomplishment. And he says there's a lot of work, a long way to go. And um, although you know the there is the hope that uh, a, a war of attrition may sap Russian will and that the sanctions regime may do the same, there's really no sign of either. And actually, uh, Western open source intelligence has. Uh, identified on Ukraine's borders another uh, military buildup, both of troops and hardware, that some have said is larger than what Russia initially went into mm. in the first in with in the first place. That doesn't seem like they're they're <laughs> you know preparing to back down uh, at this point on on their demands. Uh, you know that what once Kiev meets those demands that it has set, then, then you know, maybe negotiations have a chance. But until then, I don't think that they in, intend to back down at all. And they really don't have any reason to, because on top of this, the Western countries have made perfectly clear, this was articulated most directly uh, by uh, Bojo, by Boris Johnson, uh, the prime minister of the UK, that sanctions should not be removed even after the conflict ends. Not not until Putin is driven from power. So the Russian government has really no reason to stop until it gets everything it wants, because even after it does so, the economic decoupling is more or less permanent now. Right. It's it's the normal state of affairs and there is no return to a previous uh, kind of normal. Uh, so uh, I don't really see these either side as being serious about making any type of compromises at this point. I mean, we have to remember that after the first round of negotiations, one of the Kiev regime's own negotiators, Denis Kiryev, according to Ukrainian press and RADA members, was killed by Ukraine's intelligence services. <laughs> he was summarily executed in broad daylight on the streets of Kiev for being a traitor. I guess he wanted peace a little bit too much. Maybe he was willing to make too many concessions. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think that uh, personally speaking, uh, I would not want to be a Ukrainian peace negotiator. It, it, it seems to have a rather um, short uh, lifespan. BBC News reported two days ago, Zelensky says Ukraine prepared to discuss neutrality in peace talks. Zelensky has said his government is prepared to discuss adopting a neutral status as part of a peace deal with Russia. In an interview with independent Russian journalists, Zelensky said any such deal would have to be put to a referendum in Ukraine. They say he has made similar comments before, but rarely so forcefully. A couple of things jumped out at me in this story. One, an interview with independent Russian journalists. I found it interesting that Zelensky, amidst all of this, would be in communication with Russian journalists. That, to me, if that is in fact true, is sending a signal. Then, any such deal would have to be put to a referendum. So you've got folks in the midst of a military conflict and they're going to vote on the, on, the, on the peace terms. That to me is very interesting. And then it also says to me, wow, in 2014, before the coup, Ukraine was neutral. Then it started shifting 
towards, at least from an economic perspective, a relationship with Russia and the United States went in, of course, uh, fomented the coup. And now all of this, we're going to wind up back to where we were before. Yeah. Um, first of all, I mean, one of the immediate signs that I take as that that Kiev is not serious about peace is this talk of a referendum. That's mm-hmm. a that's a really nice, you know, uh, playing to the 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 fictional idea Correct. that that. That Zelensky is a Democrat, despite outlawing all political opposition and seizing control of all media in the country. Um, uh, yeah, but uh, but he's a Democrat. Yeah. Okay. So either he's the, the president and commander in chief of the team, or, or he's not. Or he's not. Right. He has to make that decision. He can't pass that buck. And obviously, you can't hold a referendum unless Russia completely withdraws its military forces from the country. And Russia's not going to completely withdraw the military forces. From the country until it gets its demands met. So that's a non-starter, right? That 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 mm-hmm. is a, that is a nice attempt by Zelensky to play to the press, but it shows that he is not serious about negotiations. He also has put a caveat onto that neutrality, where he would demand security guarantees, the equivalent from Article Five, from a number of nations, including the U.S. and European powers, right? Where that if then Russia, if Ukraine uh, was uh, then had its sovereignty violated, Ru- Russia is not going to agree to basically give Ukraine de facto uh, NATO security guarantees like Article Five when this whole thing was to drive uh, Ukraine, uh, you know, uh, to to drive NATO out of Ukraine. So that, that's that's a non-starter either. So uh, the conflict is going to continue. And I think it's going to continue for some time. We're not just talking weeks, months. I see years. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I, I see years in the future. This is going to be a long war of attrition. There might be temporary ceasefires. Uh, Take a look to the the model of Russian conflict in Syria, where it would talk, it would conduct diplomacy the entire time, but at the same, and it would periodically have ceasefires to, primarily for military reasons, to reinforce, uh, consolidate, uh, uh, you know, territory gained and the like, and then move forward again uh, with with some new localized situational objectives. You know. Uh, constantly reassessing what its end game is, and and that's the style of conflict that I see Russia adopting, uh, the the same playbook, if you will, that they used in Syria moving forward. Mark Sloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There is a great piece at drjackrasmus.com entitled On U.S. Imperialism's Proxy War with Russia in Ukraine. 
This is a proxy war engineered by U.S. neocons and political elites that has its origins going back as far as 1999 when the neocons began to gain greater control over U.S. foreign policy. The dress rehearsal for the current conflict originates with the Clinton administration. Once Clinton could not keep his zipper shut and the radical right used the opportunity to exact whatever concessions they wanted from him in his final two years in office, the shift in U.S. foreign policy began and has gained momentum ever since. For further insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He holds a Ph.D. in political economy, teaches economics at St. Mary's College in California. He's the author of a number of books, his latest, The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S economic policy from Reagan to Trump. He is the also the author of this piece, Dr. Jack Rasmus. As always, Jack, welcome back. My pleasure to join you. Elaborate on the Clinton angle here. Uh, once Clinton could not keep his zipper shut and the radical right used the opportunity to exact whatever concessions they wanted from him in his final two years in office, the shift in U.S. foreign policy began and has gained momentum ever since. I think this is great insight because, as Garland and I say on this show, people have a tendency to view events such as these as though they operate or they occur in a vacuum. And people don't understand the longer historical arc that culminates in situations such as these. Yeah, well, you can see it in the media. There absolutely is no historical discussion of the origins of this which has been going on and building for 20 years uh, as the U.S. Uh, imperial policy was uh, reversed. You know, when uh, um, the USSR imploded, uh, the U.S. policy led by the old guard, George Kennan and others, was, uh, okay, let's keep East Europe as a buffer uh, and uh, not move NATO East. But in 1999, that changed dramatically, and I believe it changed because uh, uh, the neocons uh, took over uh, U.S. foreign policy. They were banging on the door, um, uh, both domestically and uh, you know, the contract for America in 94 when they took over con uh, the House of Representatives and uh, they used uh, the, the Clinton impeachment as a, as a way of exacting uh, concessions from Clinton, both domestic, which we won't need to talk about, what I talked about in the book, uh, but uh, foreign policy as well. You got to understand it was then in 1999 that NATO became clearly an offensive operation and uh, the attack was on Yugoslavia and bombing of Yugoslavia, which there's no mention about now, of course. Uh, and um, it was also that year when you had the bombing of Yugoslavia that NATO began to march east. So we have a definite shift in NATO policy, a definite shift in U.S. policy. Uh, and uh, incrementally over the next 20 years, that policy deepened and deepened. Uh, you had U.S. involvement in the Orange Revolution, which ended up in a kind of a stalemate between pro-Russian and pro-Western forces in the Ukraine. Um, and uh, even up to 2010, it was a stalemate in the elections. The elections would go back and forth, back and forth. But the U.S. was deepening each each time its uh, position in Eastern Europe. Uh, you had Poland and, and Czech Republic uh, initially um, – push east, and then you had uh, the next next time uh, you had uh, the southern tier of Eastern Europe, you know, Bulgaria and, and Romania. 
Slovakia, I think that was uh, the, well, I think that was in Hungary, whatever. Um, that was in the southern southern tier. Uh, you had the U.S. Uh, provoke uh, the Georgians to invade South uh, Ossetia in Russia. That ended up in a disaster. Uh, for for NATO and the West, uh, but the U.S. kept pushing, pushing. After 2010 and the and the sort of uh, stalemate there in Ukraine, um, the U.S. Uh, got more deeply involved. Victoria Newland, the Under Secretary of State for the U.S. government, uh, bragged about funding five billion dollars. Uh, to build these uh, street forces and other forces to destabilize the government, you know, the neo-fascists uh, who have always been strong in Western Ukraine. Uh, and uh, they bragged about um, overturning the election in 2014 in the Ukraine and uh, establishing, uh, you know, the new uh, uh, pro-West, uh, very much fascist uh, elements in government and the military and everything. Um, and then, of course, there was the 2015-16 war when they attacked uh, the eastern provinces of Ukraine and Russia responded to that. Uh, a kind of stalemate followed that uh, uh, during the Trump years. But uh, the Democrats, uh, you know, blaming Russia for its intervention and loss in 2016, just waited their turn. And in 2021, um, very quickly, uh, the Biden administration began deepening military uh, relationships, uh, training uh, uh, Ukraine, giving the green light to Zelensky to, OK, NATO is coming, signing them up for the EU. Uh, and all the taunting and pr provoking of Russia, I think, was planned. Uh, and Russia facing, a, you know, a, a no win, no lose win-lose situation, you know, either let the Ukraine uh, go NATO and then you're in deep trouble. Uh, and then the next war probably will be tactical nuclear. Uh, and uh, Sweden will, will go NATO and so will Finland. And now you'll be surrounded or take the fight right now and see what happens. Uh, and that's where we are now. But I think the U.S. wanted this. You know, it's been planning, pushing east, pushing east, provoking Russia. Um, I mean, Think of a parallel with, with the United States, if Mexico joined the old Warsaw Pact, have waited a New York minute to invade Mexico, uh, no state is going to allow, uh, you know, such a so close geographically uh, an adversary on, on his border. Uh, well, that's exactly what, what Russia has done here. But, you know, none of that, that context is even discussed here in the media. The media is, oh, oh, all the refugees, oh, all the bombing of civilians, and oh, the corridors, you know, and all so on and so forth. You don't hear a thing about that in the propaganda that's been spilling out from the U.S. media. Uh, it's very difficult to get a real sense of what's going on there. Um, but you're not going to get it from CNN or MSNBC or any of the others, even Fox now. So, you know, that's my point that you got to see this thing in historical context. And who is the originator of this? And who is the precipitator of this? It's U.S. imperialism. That's what's behind it. But no one discusses that context.
Dr. Jack, we're seeing a number of things. The other part is be careful what you pray for. You just might get it. It's obvious that the U.S. wanted this to happen, and they had all these sanctions. They're ready like, okay, boom, we're going to hit them with the sanctions. We've seen a number of things happen. Initially, what we were told was the Russian economy will collapse within, you know, weeks, and that didn't happen. And people are starting to realize, well, Russia has true, has commodities, and in the long run, the world's looking at those commodities saying that's something solid, that's something that's going to be there. We're seeing the ruble have, has pretty much regained everything in March that it lost at the beginning of the month. Um, it's become the pe- best performing currency in March. And um, it doesn't, and certainly, and it appears that the sanctions are going to hurt the U.S. and U.S. allies at least as much as Russia, if not more in the case, if not in the case of Europe, more. Um, your thoughts on the, all of that and kind of the, the reorder of ec- world economic power that this thing, it seems to be unfortunately seen um, consequences? Well, I, I, I think it's imperial hubris. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, consider the fact that neocons have been in power and far, as far as foreign policy is concerned uh, for a long time. I mean, just look at the, the, the really devastating policy of the wars in the Middle East you know, we've uh, the U.S. has left the uh, uh, left the Middle East in rubble from Syria to Libya to Iraq to Afghanistan. Uh, well, who who led us to that direct? The neocons did. The neocons did, and I believe the neocons, uh, although they aren't in direct power, uh, are very much a powerful influence. Uh, you know, amongst the war hawks in Washington. Uh, and uh, they're leading us uh, without thinking of the consequences of what happens, as you say, to the international economic uh, order. Uh, their whole objective was political, uh, and that political objective was to drive Russia out of Western Europe and the European economy, not just gas, but drive it out of everything. Uh, and the U.S. capitalists step in and, and reap the benefits uh, of of the European market, I think, uh, and in the process, uh, restore U.S. hegemony over NATO that was really fracturing for a while uh, under Trump. Uh, so some big political, strategic, profitable economic objectives at the risk, as you say, of who knows where this is going in terms of the international economic order. Certainly, we're going to see a kind of bifurcation globally. There is a new world order being formed, no doubt. We can't see its whole picture, uh, but it's in progress. It's it's beginning because these sanctions and this financial imperial war, uh, which is going to continue after a truce. You see, Ukraine was, was the excuse to launch it. Um, this is going to continue for a long time and is going to deepen. Uh, the U.S. is not going to back off of these sanctions. Although when the war is over, it's going to be harder to uh, um, implement them, particularly West Europeans who are going to suffer economically the worst, not the U.S. Um, so, it, you know, this is a new world order in formation. Where it's going, we don't know. But I think the neocons did not understand the global economy and uh, how it's linked together. And they were willing to sacrifice that for political gains in NATO, in Europe, and so forth. And there's also some evidence uh, that indicates, uh, you know, some of the strategic thinking in the U.S. for years was uh, before you go after China, uh, you're going to have to neutralize Russia. 
I mean, even Iran mm-hmm. Corporation provided that report. I think there's some of that playing there. So it's like a coalition of the neocons and the establishment big capitalists, you know, with the oil companies there. They're behind all of these these imperial wars. They're, they're the gray uh, blur in the background here as far as policy is concerned. They're benefiting, of course, tremendously, tremendously. Uh, and... Uh, so are all the other monopolistic capitalist uh, companies in the West, uh, you know, as far as far as uh, uh, getting control of those markets. Uh, but they're going to have to pay more for the raw materials and the resources. But they don't care because they're monopolistic. And whatever the cost increase to them is, they will pass it on because they can as monopolies to the American consumer. We have just about two minutes left. You mentioned bifurcation in the economic system, but I'm looking at even possibly a trifurcation as you look at the yuan as well as the ruble balanced against the dollar. So what going forward, what as all of this starts to congeal, what does this do to the value of the dollar and the United States economy? Well, I think in the short run, uh, it raises the dollar. Some people say, no, the dollar is, is going to collapse. No, I, I think uh, those those economies and countries that are integrated with the global American economic empire, uh, the elites who have assets uh, will buy treasuries as a safe haven. And buying treasuries means you've got to buy dollars in order to buy the treasuries. Demand for dollars will go up. The dollar will rise. Of course, in the short run, it'll bounce around and fluctuate with speculators. But I think in the long run, as U.S. interest rates rise, and they're rising fast, we're going to have another 81, 82 recession here, no doubt. Oh God, That's baked into the goods. The dollar will rise uh, as a haven as interest rates rise because foreigners will see the greater return and less risk in treasuries, and they're going to buy dollars in order to buy treasuries. Dr. Jack Rasmus, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Anytime. Thank you, Jack. Thank you. Thank you. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. And there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There is a piece in Asia Times, China, Solomon Islands in South Pacific Sea Change Deal. A draft security agreement between the Solomon Islands and China was leaked on social media last Thursday and has been confirmed as authentic by the South Pacific Island nation. What signals is this sending for inside? We turn to our next guest. He's a journalist, social activist, international business consultant, and chemical engineer, George Koo. As always, George, welcome back. Thank you, gentlemen. Nice to be back. So the key points of the leaked draft agreement include permitting Chinese PLA Navy ships to dock and stop over in the country and carry out logistical operations. It also allows unfettered access to Chinese military police. Before we get to that, I'd like to get your take on the fact that the conditions of the 
draft agreement were leaked on social media. Whose interests are being served by a leak of that nature? Well, you can we can see one of the interested party and how they reacted, and that was Australia. I mean, the, the, the Morrison government immediately considered invading Solomon Island and do and and bring about a regime change in order to um, to you know to cause the agreement to be stillborn. So. From that, you can gather that maybe not everybody on Solomon Island is is in favor of the deal with China, and um, and and the matter of the fact is that the the party that's in power now um, canceled the agreement with Taiwan as recently as 2019, and not the opposition party was not in favor, and it didn't really. Um, go along. They wanted to continue their relationship with Taiwan, apparently. So there is a um, not a tight internal united stand in Solomon Islands. And so from that point of view, I would think that the uh, the agreement is shaky. It could be it could be subject to revision or cancellation, um, uh, uh, depending on the events that goes on from here. You know, George, the other thing that jumps out at me is the, at, at the, at, at me is the level of hypocrisy in that Australia has been going berserk, that saying, we, we must protect democracy. You can't invade a sovereign nation, not that Ukraine was sovereign or democracy, either one, but they, all of this noise about Ukraine and the minute that they even perceive something that could remote, they could interpret as a threat, they say, Ah, eh, forget all that. We'll invade anybody we want. I mean, it's obvious. To, it's obvious to the world. Your thoughts? Well, they 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 are following a very proven script, and they, that's the American script. You know, I mean, we 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 declare you persona non grata, and therefore we'll fly in and nab you and put you in jail. I mean, it, it, what we say about any of the country doesn't isn't worth much because we can change our mind. And um, and what? Well, I'm, I'm digressing a little bit. Forgive me, but you know what we're doing with Russia, canceling them out on SWIFT, uh, freezing their assets as we have done with Afghanistan and, and and others, simply is telling the world that we cannot be trusted. You know, and so if they put their faith and confidence in our dollar, they're just being stupid. And, and and as and more and more as we get that message out, I think we are going to be losing more and more uh, confidence of the world in in what we stand for and what we can be counted on, and and certainly our standing as a fiduciary would be in in great suspect. So i I can't think of more damage that we are doing to ourselves in terms of our policy, certainly in ukraine if you if you want to talk about that I'm working on a piece now it may come out in a few days on that well, go ahead topic. Go, go go ahead <laughs> yeah well okay so so if look at you know we think that we can pile sanctions on top of sanctions to to uh to have our way 
Well, it's turning out that more and more countries are not going along with our sanctions. As as um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, of China, Zhang Wenbing, pointed out, 140 countries of the UN are, are, are demurring, are, are turning us down in terms of the sanction. Brazil, uh, India, South Africa, they decided they'd rather stand with BRICS, the, the alliance, with China and Russia than to join the sanction. You know, even Mexico is saying we're not joining the sanction. More than half of the world, uh, population-wise, is saying this, this, the sanctions are, are, are not what we're standing for, what we're into. And, um, and then Russia has come up with some really, I think, devastating counter moves. They have announced that we're going to sell our oil and gas for rubles only. And if you don't want to pay us in rubles, you can pay us in gold. And wow, you know, the, the, the devaluation of the ruble that was going to sink through the floor all of, us, all of a sudden bounced back almost to the, to the point before the war started in February. So I don't know what our, our leaders are thinking, but they, they think of moves. They don't seem to anticipate counter moves and... You know, and and then of course what they're doing about China announcing uh, the, the defense pact, announcing the fact that China is going to be our next great adversary and enemy. That is an attempt to tee up China so that after we get done with Russia in Ukraine, if and when we get done, we can take on China next. It's it's uh, it's an appalling mindset that we are seeing and and it's becoming more and more dangerous to uh, to the whole world because it seems like we are now ready to go to the to, to go to the ultimate conflict which is the nuclear uh, a nuclear war in fact i read in the i think a guy by the name of gumpert gumpert who was former director of intelligence national intelligence in his Wall Street Journal article he, article, he's actually proposing that hey, to counter Russia, we put our finger on the on the button, and, and because Putin is threatening to put his finger on the button, and let's play a game of chicken and see who blinks first. This is totally uh, unheard of in in the way we are now thinking about the the risk and 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 reward of starting a nuclear war. In that context, uh, China identified as top quote unquote threat in national the new national defense strategy. China has been identified as the number one threat facing the U.S. in the Pentagon's new national defense strategy, which was sent to Congress on Monday. So it it really appears as though. The United States is taking this economic competition, escalating it, and seeming to to decide that the only solution available to the United States in dealing with an economic issue is a military threat. Yeah, because because honestly speaking, it, on the on strictly economic basis. Um, U.S. doesn't hold many cars. They don't have the leverage. They, they don't have the major. Uh, ma- they're not a source of like Russia, a source of oil and gas, for example. They, they just don't have the economic control 
that enables them to continue to call the shots that they're so used to doing. And so they are now threatening the military, and they seem to be very um, very determined to take that risk and, and play that, you know, button, the, the finger on the nuclear button game of chicken. And the other thing that you, you know, you, you talked about uh, that w- we've discussed is um, you said, you know, they want to go after Russia. And then when they're done with them, if they get done with them, go after China. I think that there's going to be a bump in the road between those. And that's this, the economic repercussions of these sanctions that by the time they get finished with this, and I mean, you know, finished in a way, by the time this um, Russian thing drags out, the unintended consequences economically will be devastating for Europe, which means the U.S.'s coalition is going to crumble because there, there's going to be terrible consequences for Europe and not so great for us. So I think the economic consequences of what they're doing are going to be so devastating on the U.S. and its coalition, they're not going to be in much of a condition to go after anybody. Your thoughts? Oh, well, I, I absolutely and totally agree. The 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 rampant inflation that we're going to be facing is not immediately apparent, but you're right that the Europeans are going to be hurt a lot worse. And already Germany and France and some of the other EU countries are waffling about whether they should continue to go along with the uh, uh, American line of sanction. And, you know, and when you do sanction on top of sanctions, you, you and don't forget Russia is a major supplier not only of oil and gas but agricultural products and fertilizer and denying them participation in the world market will simply mean rampant starvation and inflation for the whole world and then, and the whole world's going to turn on the US uh, because of it the other thing is China knows full well that once once they got once the uh, U.S. defeats Russia, China will be next, and therefore there is no way that they're not going to support Russia and keep Russia in in the in the fight and not collapsing. So it's it's it is a totally zero sum no win situation right now. But I think the U, what U.S. is inflicting. It's going to be a serious blowback, and it's going to hurt the U.S. a lot more than the adversaries that we've been talking about. Hell on wheels. China readies high-speed rail nukes. China is looking at launching nuclear-tipped intercontinental ballistic missiles from specially designed high-speed trains that can transport its nuclear arsenal across the country's large landmass, making them more difficult to intercept and destroy. This is the next level, and the United States is nowhere capable of dealing with this. What say you, George Koo? Yeah, well, there's lots of technical challenges involved, apparently. But um, it, it certainly adds more flexibility to the uh, in, in terms of China's ability to respond. I mean, China has heretofore stick to the second strike capability, which is uh, uh, without the hypersonic and without some of the advanced weaponry and tactics, it may not be all that viable simply because everybody is is loading up to 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 destroy the world over so putting the high speed rail certainly is um increases their their option 
to retaliate and to, to fight back. But hey, uh, this, I, I think the American people need to understand that we could be in for a total annihilation if we don't do something about the current leaders that we have in Washington, because they are seriously deranged and seriously ambitious in, in trying to take over the world. And, and we're going to be paying a price. And that price is much too, much too dear to contemplate. As we wrap this up, we have just about a minute. Is it simply hubris and arrogance that is guiding this or misguiding the American leadership? You know, it's um, I, I used to think that was the case. Um, but, uh, uh, but I tell you, the, I'm not, I, I, you know, there's so much, so many neocons that really think that they can win the nuclear war. And even if we cannot win the nuclear war, by gosh, we're going to go down fighting, even if we blow up the last person on earth. Mm. And man, that is such a, that's such a terrible consequence to contemplate. George Koo, as always, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate your squeezing us in, your busy schedule today. We look forward to having you back. Nice to be back. Thank you, gentlemen. Thanks, George. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Germany initiates emergency plan for case of gas supplies termination. According to Economy Minister Robert Habeck, the, or Habeck, the emergency plan stipulates three stages. What do we make of all of this? Well, for insight, we turn to our next guest. He's an investigative journalist, analyst, and author of three books, The Frozen Republic, The Velvet Coup, and America's Undeclared War. Daniel Lazar, as always, Daniel, welcome back. Uh, thanks for having me. Two things that, that jumped out to me with understanding now where Germany is. One is, uh, you know, months ago when there, right after, well, actually, I guess it would be a year or two after, uh, during the, the rise of the Biden administration, there was all this discussion about Nord Stream 2 and that Russia using gas as a political weapon. Well, what we really seem now to be engaged in is the United States is using gas as the political weapon, as the United States, as 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 Biden stood there next to Olaf Schultz in the White House and said, we're not going to allow the turn up of Nord Stream 2. That's the United States using gas uh, as a weapon. And it was about a month ago or so when we were reading reports that uh, Germany had gotten down to about 30 percent of its gas reserves. And so it doesn't seem to be Russia putting the pressure here. It's Russia responding to the pressure here. Dan Lazar. Yeah, I mean, you know, and actually on this program, uh, 
uh, we have discussed Nord Stream two a number of times, mm-hmm. and and I and I I must confess now I just didn't take the issue seriously enough. I mean I didn't understand really how profoundly important um, it it loomed in terms of U.S. strategy. Uh, And now we know it was a major, major issue because the U.S. was determined to avoid any kind of emerging, you know, uh, Russian-German alliance to prevent any kind of breaking of ranks from, from, you know, by by the Europeans vis-a-vis American policy towards Russia. Uh, but now we know that you know, that the that the U.S. has that the U.S. provoked this war. It has succeeded in shutting Nord Stream two down, um, and now um, essentially Germany is facing a cutoff in gas supplies, which could have this catastrophic, too strong a term. No, no, very damage, very damaging consequences in terms of the German economy. So you know, so I mean, so Germany's got to be asking itself, you know, how did it, how did it get here? You know, how did it allow this catastrophe to uh, to develop? You know, and I think in the, the discussion, you know, when, when we talk about the the U.S. empire's coalition, if that's the worst word, coal, the right word, coalition of vassals, at the forefront, the one that is the most exposed, I mean, their neck is hanging out with an axe over it, is Germany in so many ways. And it appears, I mean, with friends like the U.S., you don't need enemies. They're like, hey, can we go ahead, hack Germany's neck off, cut off their gas? Now the Russian is, Russia is saying we have, we're, we, we've got, have to, you have to pay in rubles. Germany doesn't really have a chance in the uh, 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 an option in the physical world because if they cut it off, their economy is toast. They're saying recession. No, you have to have an economy to have a recession. Their economy is switched off just like a light switch. Everything switched off. Their country does no longer exist. They're living in the Stone Ages. So it's not an option. And they're still saying we're going to try to play chicken with Russia when they have nothing. They have no ammunition to play with. It's amazing to watch a country say based on ideology, based on our adherence to this, you know, or based on our willingness to stay in the co- in this coalition with the U.S., we're t- we'll just commit economic suicide and then just melt away to nothingness. Dan, Germany's playing Russian roulette with a loaded gun. Yep, with a fully loaded gun. And, it, and, it, and it's not even, not even, it isn't even isn't even Russia's fault. No, I mean the um, yeah, no, no, it, it's uh, it's 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 crazy. It's crazy. Uh, and and you know and and I you know and and. I really think, I mean, first of all, we're, we can be absolutely positive that, that, that Joe Biden is a doddering old fool who has no idea what's going, what's going on, number one. But number two, I mean, I mean they, 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 this war is creating a catastrophe um, for, for all concerned, uh, and including the Europeans, uh, who have allowed themselves to be led blindly into this conflict. Uh, and and you know and and you know when when factories shut down, that means that that workers are laid off. And when workers are laid off, they get very angry. Okay? <laughs> and so and so and, and 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 so there there are political consequences. Elaborate on the political consequence because here in the West, 
folks don't really understand the the experience of the parliamentary system and how a government with a vote of no contest can be overturned in the course of a day. Yeah, well, and yes, and uh, the, uh, the, the, the German system has certain safeguards brought in, uh, built into it. But nonetheless, you're right. I mean, uh, essentially, uh, the way a parliamentary system works is that it simply is a, a coalition of parties. Whoever gets a majority in, the, in, the, uh, in the, the National Assembly or the parliament gets to form the government. It's, it's actually very informal, very fluid, uh, and it can change on a dime. You're right. Um, so uh, in, in Britain, the classic example, you know, you have a simple vote of no confidence. And if there's a, if there's a vote of no confidence, that means that the, 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 the sitting prime minister is out and the people who won the vote of no confidence are given an opportunity to either form an elect, form a, a government, a replacement government, or they go to elections. So it's very fluid, very, very dynamic. I mean, I think it's actually Great. I mean, it's much more democratic than what we have in America. Mm-hmm. But the point, but the point is, is like, you know, is that, is that people are going to start asking very hard questions because they're out of work. I and mean, being out of work makes you, you know, makes you question stuff. And and they're going to ask very hard questions about, you know, how they are, they arrived at this kind of dead end. And it is a dead end. And and, and here and here's the thing too. We hear. Uh, of late in in American political parlance, kitchen table issues that what's really going to get to the crux of the debate, what's going to motivate voters in the United States are kitchen table issues. Well, when your factories are closed and when you can't turn your heat on to heat your home, that you don't and and, and you don't have gas in the kitchen to cook your meals. That's about as kitchen table as kitchen table can be, Dan Lazar. Yes, I, mean, I, th- I think you're, I think you're right. I think that, that the way the way modern societies work is that ninety percent of the population, you know, kind of you know tunes out uh, during you know during the ordinary business of politics, uh, and uh, and they notice when kitchen table issues arise. In other words, when the when the when the the, the, the parents and the kids start like you know, start start talking around the kitchen table and wondering why they have no fuel for their car or no fuel for their their stove or why you know dad or mom is out of work uh, and while there's why you know why there's something facing a, a major financial crunch that is that's what that is a kitchen table issue and these issues have profound political ramifications. Now, I mean, and, and, and Western Europe has you know, saw, saw a major upsurge in populism uh, starting uh, around 2014-15 in response to the, the uh, in, in great measure, to the refugee wave, which was caused by America's endless wars in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And now they're, they're going to see more turbulence caused by America's wars you know, closer to home in the Ukraine. And, and they've got to ask themselves, you know, how did this happen? Uh, it's, you know, it just, it's just not all that, that, that the, the fault of that, of that bad Mr. Putin. No, clearly the causes are more complex, more, more comprehensive than simply one guy in the Kremlin. 
Uh, you know, Dan, here's two things. Robert Feiger, he heads the IGBAU BAU Construction Workers Union in Germany, said, quote, the federal government must do everything in its power to ensure in- energy supply despite the current crisis situation. His colleague from the Metal Workers Union uh, also spoke of the danger of disrupting a, a disruption, uh, production chains due to them being of fundamental impor- importance for Europe. He also called upon the government to provide support to companies and protect employees in the event of cuts caused by excessive energy costs. So now we're having the people who represent the workers say, you got to act on this. As you know, this is now, you know, the NATO and all of these leaders are all puffing their chest out saying, boy, we're really going after Russia. The cracks are starting to form a month, two months into this, because what we're not talking about just economic problems. We're talking about massive economic and societal collapse here. I mean, and I don't think I'm being over the top saying when you turn off the gas to your company and you can't run the electric uh, uh, for entire cities, societal collapse is at hand. And simply so that Ted Cruz Senator Ted Cruz can sell more natural gas from Texas to Europe. Am, am I being over the top with my with my language rhetoric? Oh, I mean, I, I being over the top, but maybe a trifle. I mean, like we're not we're not in the Stone Age yet, but certainly we're facing this major economic disruption and major political turmoil. There's no doubt about that. I mean, uh, uh, and um, and and I I, I think um, and, and, and anybody who 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 watched. Uh, um, Biden's speech in Warsaw last Saturday. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have to realize that the world, that they, the, the, the fate of the West is in the hands of a guy who is clearly senile, who has little grasp of the political complexities. One minute. Who is, who is, who is carried away with this, 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 this idea of militant, of a militant West rearmed, united, and going to war against Russia, you know, he, he you know, in, throughout his speech, he conflated Soviet acts with Russian acts. I mean, even though Putin, you know, announces invasion with a denunciation of Lenin, you know, he he still somehow thinks that the the two entities are the same. Uh, and it's the kind of it's the kind of stuff you hear from your your crazy uncle, you know, over the, you know, over Thanksgiving dinner. It's, it's remnants and, uh, of Brzezinski's influence in American policy. I, I agree with Brzezinski. He called for breaking up Russia into three parts under American tutelage. Dan Lazar, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. You're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, and joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Saudi-led coalition's Yemen ceasefire meaningless amid all-out siege, according to top Ansar Allah official. A senior member of Yemen's popular 
Ansur Allah resistance movement has dismissed the Saudi-led coalition's announcement that it would halt military operations during the holy Muslim fasting month of Ramadan, stating that the measure is utterly meaningless as long as the brutal siege against the impoverished country is in effect. What are we to make of all of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a political uh, analyst, producer, media consultant, and journalist, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So, as I understand it, uh, on one side, uh, Reuters and others are reporting that the uh, Saudis being pushed by the United Nations have offered a ceasefire during the holy month of Ramadan. But Ansar Allah is saying that's a waste of time unless you also open up the ports and and let the country get back to business. Yeah, I mean, it's funny how the Saudis are trying to turn a defeat into some advantage. Um, You know, over the last week, the... Yemeni army and Ansarullah targeted much of the oil infrastructure in uh, Saudi-occupied Arabia, specifically the installations that are servicing the internal market. And they, on purpose, didn't target the uh, international output uh, ports. And, uh, you know, two days, uh, a day and a half ago, uh, Ansarullah announced that they will pause for three days and giving the Saudis a chance to stop all their attacks on Yemeni territory or that they will uh, bomb the international output ports of the Saudis uh, by the end of the three days. So we see right now this response of the Saudis attempting to make it look like they are the ones offering a ceasefire. Um, and uh, trying to waste the time, really, of Ansarullah by uh, making it a temporary ceasefire around uh, just Ramadan. People are starving in Yemen with or without fasting. They are uh, fasting every day with or without Ramadan because of the starvation levels in the country. And uh, clearly, the Saudis are trying to have this, uh, quote-unquote, peace talks between Yemeni groups that they control without the uh, inclusion of Ansarullah and the government of Sana'a. And that, again, that is going going to go nowhere. The Saudis must accept the demands of uh, the Yemeni people and the siege and uh, stop invading Yemen. What do you think is the reason uh, that the Saudis, I mean, at this point, it seems very, very obvious. They need to block the siege of the Yemen's airport of, of, and, and, and uh, ports um, in order to get peace. And they have everything to gain in that, you know, they're getting hit hard by missiles and it's really, you know, is going to take its toll on their ability to export oil. Um, what do you think the reasoning is behind um, the Saudis' refusal to take what seems to be a pretty obvious and and uncomplicated step to to, to end this thing? I think there is a uh, confliction between, uh, on the one hand, what the Americans need right now, uh, which is an increase of output from the Gulf countries to replace uh, the Russian um, output in the market that is being sanctioned. And at the same time, 
the Saudis don't want to look like they have, uh, you know, lost the war in front of the resistance in Yemen. The Yemenis have them uh, at their knees, basically, at this moment. If they, if the Yemenis actually attack the uh, oil supplies of the Saudis, this is going to affect the empire in its worst day. And um, so, the, you know, the Saudis have to make a choice. Either they're going to have to live the wrath of their master in D.C. if the uh, output of oil gets affected and or uh, accept uh, this defeat and acknowledge it. You just mentioned the conflict of interest, and it, it it's amazing to me. There's a conflict of interest. Uh, U.S. is in the way of peace in Yemen. There's a conflict of interest in Ukraine. The U.S. is in the way of peace in Ukraine. Zelensky, President Zelensky, it has mentioned at, at a number of different times, but over the last few days, I think, you know, he's saying, I want to sit down with President Putin. I want to work out uh, peace. I'm willing to uh, be a neutral country and not join NATO. United States is saying, eh, I don't know if that's a good idea there. Uh, so, so, you know, again, the U.S. is in the way. Yeah, and it will continue to be in the way, unfortunately, for all these vessels. Uh, until it is um, defeated and or those vessels, you know, escape the hold of the United States. You know, the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Bahrainis uh, all have a dilemma, which is that they are illegitimate rulers that have been installed by the British and the Americans. And they are absolute monarchies with no even semblance of, of uh, you know, representation for the population in the governing of their daily lives. And for the last hundred years, all the resources of these countries have been looted to international offshore accounts and to the pockets of these uh, appointed monarchs. So without the Americans being there to directly protect them with their imperial army, they will disappear in a day. And so there, there is that situation. At the same time, they they're trying to look like that they have some sovereignty with this war in Yemen that uh, they're not ending uh, because they want to still look like they they can beat on somebody uh, without uh, Big Daddy being there. And um, this is now where the problem lies. If the United States actually withdraws from the area, they will collapse, and therefore. Uh, they will have no choice in the coming days but to, uh, you know, abide by what the master wants. Uh, there's been a number of attacks um, in the last week in Israel. Um, and Tuesday evening, a motorcycle riding gunman killed five um, Israeli settlers, including a police officer in the town of uh, Brea Brock, east of Tel Aviv, before he was killed. Um, there's uh, four Israeli settlers were killed in a stabbing and ramming attack in Beersheba on March 22nd. Two officers were shot dead in Hedera on Sunday. Um, what's going on with the um, the significant uptick in uh, in, in the number of t- attacks and uh, what's happening in Israel? Well, the whole of uh, Palestine is uh, on the edge right now. We saw continuous attacks on Palestinians in East Jerusalem, in Sheikh Jarrah, and we see daily attacks by settlers on Palestinians in uh, the West Bank, in Hebron, in Jenin, uh, outside Ramallah. 
And uh, the situation of Palestinians inside Gaza didn't uh, change, no re rebuilding um, of, of, of the territories and the buildings that were destroyed and the infrastructure that was destroyed in the last attack by the Zionists. So we're coming also on the doors of Ramadan. It's coming this week. Um, everybody expects always that the Zionist the settlers like to spill some Palestinian blood uh, for uh, Ramadan. Uh, and, and, of course, the Palestinian uh, civilians in the West Bank are now at a, you know, total conflict with the Palestinian Authority that has been targeting any Palestinian uh, activism uh, for liberation in the West Bank. So we see the situation coming out of control of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. Uh, we sh should be expecting more and more attacks uh, coming from the West Bank into the 1948 territories. And um, as the Ramadan starts and the Zionist uh, usual uh, bloodletting of Palestinians start, uh, we should expect, you know, a, a return to open hostilities. We may be at the same moment we were there uh, last year in last Ramadan when the war uh, broke out uh, across all of uh, historic Palestine. Top EU foreign policy chief says Iran holding up nuclear deal. Addressing the deal, EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell noted sometimes they think they're almost there and other days not. You know, to me, Leith, even when the negotiating parties come to an agreement on terms, the final document still has to go to the U.S. and Iranian negotiators in the same room, at some point, I think a lot of people have lost sight of the fact that the U.S. and Iran still are not face-to-face -face sitting across the table negotiating this. And now I realize that this is how diplomacy works. The, the terms are agreed to by the undersecretaries. But in this instance, I, I still think, as, as Robert Frost wrote, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. Oh, yeah, and, and there is no end in sight. I think uh, many people may be shocked when the day comes and we don't actually sign a deal. The problem, uh, again, what we see here is the United States really didn't want to enter this deal in the original place. They only wanted to do so to uh, kind of take uh, Iran out of the international arena of a conflict while the United States concentrates on Russia and China. Of course, uh, this was all ruined, this idea, uh, this plot when when uh, Trump withdrew. And now it's too late, you know, uh, trying to neutralize the effect of Iran uh, from global politics while you already have started a confrontation with Russia and almost at the edge of confrontation with China uh, is not going to help the United States in its uh, endeavors. Therefore, I think logically, uh, no matter how much uh, the Iranians wish that there will be a signing of this deal, this deal will not be signed.
Additionally, the the other thing is it seems to me now it's getting to a point where time is on Iran's side in that they withstood, you know, the the the, the sanctions were imme- were intended to crush them. They withstood the sanctions. And now that with uh, the thirst for oil and gas and energy being what it is, people are going all around the sanctions. Iran seems to be selling a lot of oil lately. So and, and with the new international monetary system uh, coming, you know, seeming to come online, it seems like they held out and things are going to move in their favor to the point where they won't have to worry about this thing one way or the other um, in the long run. Your thoughts, Lee? Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up because that's the other side of the the coin. You know, on the one hand, it's too late. The United States cannot really uh, gain anything from uh, taking Iran out of the international conflict uh, balance uh, because they already started the war with Russia. And on the other hand, Iran has survived the maximum pressure uh, sanctions over the last five years and was uh, is now has adjusted its economy. And as you see, that the international uh, economic system is changing and it's becoming out of the control of the United States uh, from the you know people exchanging uh, over their national um, currencies or using systems that are different than the Swiss, SWIFT for the uh, international exchanges. So we're at this point where uh, it's too late, neither for um, Iran or for the United States, that this deal is not going to do anything. And uh, we will see, therefore, uh, just a continuation of pretending of having discussions about this until there's actual action on the ground. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate it. And we look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. You too. You are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's an interesting piece in Consortium News entitled, Russia, Ukraine, and the Law of War, Crime of Aggression. When it comes to the legal use of force between states, it is considered unimpeachable fact that in accordance with the intent of the United Nations Charter to ban all conflict, there are only two acceptable exceptions. One is an enforcement action to maintain international peace and security authorized by a Security Council resolution passed in Chapter 7 of the Charter, which permits the use of force. The other is the inherent right of individual and collective self-defense as enshrined in Article 51 of the Charter. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer who served in the former Soviet Union implementing arms control treaties in the Persian Gulf during Operation Desert Storm and in Iraq overseeing the, the disarmament of WMD. And he's the author of this piece, Scott Ritter, as always. Scott, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me. You go into a very detailed explanation, not only in the context of international law, but in the history leading up to it. How does all of that factor into this particular Ukrainian circumstance? Well, I mean, 
there, there's two things. Uh, first of all, let's just start with uh, World War II and the end of the, uh, the war in the Nuremberg Tribunal. And um, the judgment by the collective of uh, military judges that the greatest war crime is the crime of uh, a war of aggression, uh, because from that all other crimes come. Um, and so the United Nations sought to, in the aftermath of the Nuremberg trials, sought to um, ban war of aggressions by, you know, carefully scripting the, the two exceptions to this ban on war, uh, the two that you spoke of, Chapter 7 Resolution and um, Article 51 Self-Defense. Um, the as we move into a discussion of what constitutes self-defense, because the chapter seven is, is, is self-evident. I fought in a chapter seven war. Um, the, the, the desert storm, 1991 Gulf war was a war authorized by a security council resolution chapter, uh, the chapter seven resolution that authorized the international community to use, uh, whatever means necessary up to including military force to evict Iraq from Kuwait. Um, so, you know, people can be against that war, but they can't say it was an illegal war of aggression because it had absolute legitimacy. By contrast, uh, the 2003 invasion of Iraq, uh, has been deemed by most, uh, international law scholars to be an illegal war of aggression <laughs> because it lacked a, a chapter seven, uh, authority and B, uh, the um, Article 51 um, justification that was uh, put out by the United States doesn't pass the smell test. Um, first of all, the United States can't say that it was acting in self-defense. Iraq did not attack the United States. In fact, in 2003, Iraq did not attack anybody. Uh, but the, 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 the case being made by the United States is one of an imminent threat. And now we go back to before World War II, back to way back to 1837, when there was a, an incident at sea between the British and the United States called the Caroline Affair, uh, where the British basically attacked uh, an American vessel, uh, claiming that because this vessel was uh, providing support to rebels uh, fighting the British authorities in Canada, that uh, it posed an imminent threat, an imminent risk. Uh, and had to be dealt with preemptively. So now we introduce the concept of a war of preemption. And we've, we've seen this used before. For instance, NATO justified going into um, Serbia, bombing Serbia uh, in 1999, uh, citing um, a, a, you know, justification under Article 51 and the uh, ongoing, what they call the ongoing genocide of uh, Albanians at the hands of the Serbs, and that this constituted an imminent threat to European peace and security. Now, the interesting thing about NATO citing this, and the re reason why I'm bringing it up will come clear soon, is that NATO is not a member of the United Nations. The United Nations is composed of individual states, mm -hmm. and Article 51 is usually governed by individual states. What NATO was seeking is an exception um, to, to the individual state thing that falls under the concept of collective security defined by, a, uh, by, by not just an alliance, but a grouping um, of, of nations in, in, into that, in the manner which 
creates collective security interests. So NATO is a, a grouping of nations that gives it some sort of a waiver under Article 51 to uh, act preemptively in the name of collective self-defense. Uh, the United States, you know, made this claim again in, uh, against the Iraqis, citing imminent threat of WMD and terrorism. The interesting thing about both the Serbian claims made by NATO and the claims made by the United States and Iraq is after the fact, it turned out that all of their justifications were manufactured. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there was no legitimacy to these claims. So they, whatever authority or, or authorization they were seeking in Article 51 immediately disappears because they lied about the, the, the imminent nature. Now we fast forward to the present times, and we have Russia launching a war against Ukraine where Russia has invoked Article 51, saying that we are acting in self-defense. Now, it is a claim of preemptive self-defense because clearly Ukraine had not attacked Russia. Ukraine had, though, been attacking the Donbass for a period of eight years. But one of the problems with international law is that the Donbass is Ukrainian territory. And so Russia can't claim um, you know, collective self-defense if all Ukraine is doing is attacking its own territory. Here we come to what happened right before the invasion, where the territories of Donetsk and Lugansk declared independence, and Russia recognized their independence. Now, people will say, but the world hasn't recognized it. They're not members of the United Nations. Bing, bring in NATO, who is not a member of the United Nations. And suddenly we understand what Russia has done. Russia has crafted the, a, 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 a case in, in terms of collective self-defense, where Russia, with these newly declared independent entities of Lugansk and Donetsk, who do not have to be members of the United Nations, but only have to be linked to Russia in a collective security arrangement, are now saying we are under imminent threat of attack by Ukraine, which the Russians say, hey, they got you know 100,000 guys over here with 2,000 tanks ready to march in. We have the documents. We had to preempt their attack. And the point I'm bringing up in all of this is a lot of people can sit here and say that these, uh, these justifications under preemption um, uh, you know, shouldn't be allowed under international law, but they are. I mean, I don't want to get into the law school justification of it. Long story short, there is, under international law, authority for preemptive military action. But it does require a genuine threat of an imminent nature, and you can invoke collective security if you can articulate a case for you know, two or more entities uh, who have shared security interests. And Russia clearly has done that with Donbass and Lugansk and the ongoing attacks made by um, by the Ukrainians against uh, Donbass, Russia also cited the genocide-like uh, activity. Um, again, legally speaking, I think it would be difficult to make a case for genocide, but understand that that genocide argument has been used, again, by NATO in terms of Serbia, where only dozens of people were being killed. Here we have 14,000, uh, so I think Russia gets a little bit of latitude, but under no circumstances can you doubt 
the the feeling that they believed they were under imminent threat from 100,000-plus Ukrainian troops massed in eastern Ukraine ready to attack Lugansk and Donbass. The Russians say under Article 51, the collective security aspect, uh, we were authorized to carry out a preemptive uh, attack to, uh, to eliminate this threat. I noticed in your article you mentioned uh, the, um, the Ukrainian president's uh, comments about um, wanting to acquire nuclear weapons, one. And number two, the issue of, you know, uh, in, in the issue, issue of Iraq, after the fact, it was found out that there was no um, claims that were made to justify the attack were false now, in the same way, post-attack, the finding of the um, uh, biolabs, and depending on what's fi- found in that, could something be found post-attack that could be used as evidence per se that, okay, this, is, this helps to strengthen the case, or does that really matter? And what about the claims of wanting a nuclear weapon by Zelensky? How, how do those two things fit into this at all, if at all? Well, again, um, I don't have a— uh a Columbia Law School or Harvard Law School um, parchment on my wall. Um, and so I, I would say that it would take one hell of a lawyer to be able to construct a case for preemption based upon uh, facts that were not known at the time. So I don't believe that Russia could claim to justify its actions by citing these biological uh, labs unless they had articulated prior to the uh, the attack that these labs somehow posed an imminent threat to them. Um, and I don't believe, I haven't seen anything that uh, shows that they made a direct reference. There's indirect, meaning that Russia has in the past raised concerns about these laboratories, but uh, the linkage between those concerns and the decision to uh, invade uh, I don't believe was made and I don't think has any legitimacy in an effort to try and retroactively legitimize their actions. Um, but the nuclear one is different. Russia has specifically said that Zelensky's uh, comments to the Munich Security Council about uh, wanting to leave the NPT and wanting to acquire nuclear weapons uh, when matched with, it claims, um uh, intelligence that it possesses that the Ukrainians were seeking to take the uh, uranium fuel rods, the spent fuel rods, and convert them into a dirty radiological weapon. Um, And that furthermore, Ukraine was uh, involved in ongoing uh, efforts to extract plutonium or acquire plutonium for a nuclear weapon that this would indeed become a WMD-affiliated um, case for eminence. And unlike what happened in the United States, uh, it appears that uh, Russia it will be able to sustain these allegations with fact, if ever called upon to do so. Based upon the case that you've laid out, uh, where does all of this fit into the mainstream Western narrative? Because you've laid out a very clear explanation as to the rationale and justification of the actions taken by Russia a month ago. We're not hearing much of this being articulated on CNN or MSNBC. No, there's look, there's there's two fancy Latin terms that you get to use when you're a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer, so I won't use them. 
Uh, but the first term uh, deals with the legal justification for war, which is what we have ex- been discussing here. And then the second term deals with your conduct um, during the war. And both of these uh, concepts are independent of the other, meaning that you could legally be allowed to go to war, but still be accused of war crimes if mm-hmm. you prosecuted this war improperly. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you could be you could illegally go to war um, and, and do it the right way to that, but do it the right way and not be prosecuted for that. But the Ukrainians and, and the Western media and everybody starts off with the premise that because Russia has illegally invaded mm-hmm. uh, Ukraine, everything that follows is a war crime. That is false. Ipso facto, I that is not correct. That is correct. Now, I believe that Russia has legally invaded Ukraine, and I also believe that everything Russia is doing will be shown to have been in total conformity with the laws of war. I'm actually writing part two to that article that will discuss that very issue. And we look forward to having you back to articulate it. Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Reuters reports Saudi-led coalition to halt military operations in Yemen as U.N. urges truce. While U.S. News & World Report reports, Saudis' unilateral Yemen ceasefire offer rejected by rebels, the Saudi-led coalition fighting rebels holding Yemen's capital plans a unilateral ceasefire to begin Wednesday ahead of the holy Muslim fasting month of Ramadan. What are we to make of all of this? Well, for insight, we turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist and author of Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion of Iraq, Nick Davies. As always, Nick, welcome back. Yeah. Hi, Garland. Hi, Wilmer. So the uh, the Saudis are initiating a ceasefire based upon the holy month of Ramadan, but uh, Ansar Allah is saying, no, that that's really a waste of time unless you, uh, that it's meaningless without reopening the country's ports. Your thoughts about what all of this really signals, Nick Davies? Yeah, well, I would have hoped that at this point, um, you know, the the fighting is kind of at an impasse, it seems. Um, so th- this should be a moment when both sides uh, should be willing to agree to a ceasefire and a truce. But, you know, the the... What the what the Saudis have proposed, you know, it, it's not really um, it's it, it, it's not what the Houthis are asking for, because you know they there are some there are four um, ships tankers full of oil 
to, to deliver to Yemen, sitting off the port of Hodeidah. They're allowed, and the Saudis are saying, yes, we'll allow these four ships to come in and unload, um, but that's it. And we'll allow a few flights into the airport in Sana'a, but then, in effect, the, the blockade will carry on as before. It, and so, um, you know, this, this, this does not really, if, if the Houthis were to agree to that, um, they, they'd effectively be agreeing to stop fighting, uh, but to remain under this savage blockade, which is really a siege of their entire country. Um, you know, it's very hard to get food in there. They're totally dependent on aid from the UN and, and NGOs. Um, their, their health system has been completely ruined, hospitals bombed and, 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 um, put out of action. Um, and in, and in the midst of all this, the, the war in Ukraine, um, has, has had a, already had a horrible effect on food prices in Yemen. They're reportedly up by, uh, 150% since the crisis began in Yemen. And that is partly that is because their their grain uh, comes from both Ukraine and Russia, and of course there's not much coming out of Ukraine right now, and and the sanctions, uh, particularly on Russian banks and so on, um, really make it very difficult for um, other countries to import food from Russia. So, you know, this is this is a situation where if if the United States and other allies of the Saudis were going to actually have a positive impact, this would be the time when Joe Biden should be talking to Mohammed bin Salman and saying, here, this is the chance for peace. This is a chance to put an end to this. And, you know, you, you guys just have to lift this blockade. Um, and instead, you know, Biden is still going hat in hand, trying to get more oil for the U.S. out of, out of Saudi Arabia. And uh, at one point it was reported that the Saudis wouldn't even take a call from Biden about that. Um, so really, um, you know, the, the U.S. position in this is just totally compromised, totally as so often with its uh, puppet regimes around the world. Um, it is the puppet pulling the strings, in this case, MBS pulling Joe Biden's strings. And um, but the Houthis hopefully are in a strong enough position that they can, in fact, force a real, a real ceasefire and a real end to the blockade. Um, the, the UN Security Council has also played an extremely unhelpful role by still maintaining the pretense of uh, Mansour Abdul Hadi as the um, legitimate president of Yemen, which he is not. His, his government is still internationally recognized, but, you know, he was put in um, when uh, President Saleh stopped down 
stepped down back in about, was it 2012? Um, he, Hadi was supposed to be an interim president for two years to organize a constitutional convention and a new election. It was when he simply didn't do any of that and remained ensconced in the presidential palace beyond the two years that he was supposed to be there that the Houthis marched on Sana'a and essentially demanded that he do his job. They weren't trying to take over the country. They were trying to get President Hadi to do his job, which he still refused to do. And, um, you know, and he then uh, hightailed it to Saudi Arabia and essentially declared war on his own people. That, so the, Houthi, the Houthis are, you know, the, the, really the, the effective government of, of most of Yemen at this point, including the capital. And, um, you know, this, this needs to be recognized by the U.S. and the international community. And they, needs to, they, they need to be treated with the respect they deserve and, um, you know, the, really the power of the so-called international community needs to be brought to bear to force Hadi and the Saudis to actually seriously negotiate an end, not just to the airstrikes and, and the fighting, but, but to the, the blockade siege of Yemen, which is starving their people and, and creating probably the worst humanitarian crisis in the world today, rivaled closely by Afghanistan. But, um, you know, that's another story. The other thing that I, I, I see here and that the, 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 uh, the Houthis or Ansar Allah, however you want to call them, are recognizing, and that is that and it's something that we talk about often on the show with you, that there is no difference between kinetic and economic war in the devastation that it has amongst people. So Saudis, the Saudis in reality are saying, OK, we'll stop the kinetic war, the economic war, which has cost probably, number one, it's more devastating you oftentimes on civilians and it's probably cost the most lives in many wars. We're going to continue going on with the economic war and we'll back off the kinetic war and the and the uh the yemens the, the ansar Allah, i guess i'll call them they are um they're saying no you're going to stop both of them or this is not stop you know it's a fake to say we're only going to stop the, the the kinetic but not the um but not the economic war and they're basically saying no it's not a ceasefire unless you stop both of them your thoughts yeah, well, okay, and I guess that kind of brings us to Afghanistan in a way because yes, the US the US has been defeated and withdrawn from Afghanistan and yet now the United States is um continuing an economic war against Afghanistan. Um you know, the, the there are now um according to and this is according to the UN in Afghanistan 95 percent of the people do not have enough to eat, um, whereas even under U.S. occupation, 14 million people were dependent on humanitarian aid to survive. Uh, now, 23 million people are dependent on um, 
foreign, you know, on humanitarian aid to survive, and there is much, much less of it getting in there. The United States has stolen Afghan, Afghanistan's international foreign currency reserves. Um, the, the U.S. and its allies together sitting on about nine billion dollars that you know that could could relieve uh at least in the short term the the whole humanitarian crisis in afghanistan um i do take issue with one thing which is that um there are many reports saying that more people are dying in afghanistan from the humanitarian crisis than died from 20 years of U.S. occupation and war, and likewise in Yemen, that, that more people are dying from the humanitarian crisis than the war. I think that needs to be taken with a big grain of salt because in both cases and in every case of U.S.-led or U.S. coalition wars, the number of uh, people dying in the country and the number of civilians dying in the country is so severely underestimated by the UN and other agencies that it, that creates a false picture. I mean, if you take the UN figures on how many people have been killed in the war, 20 years of US war in Afghanistan, um, it's it's far 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 less than than you know than, than the reality, and that that has even been acknowledged by um, the UN officials in Afghanistan who are producing those figures. Um, because I mean, basically, what they have been doing this entire time in Afghanistan is is taking the number of civilians killed in incidents that have been fully investigated by the UN Human Rights Office in Kabul, and taking that as an estimate of the total number of civilians killed in the country. Uh, and, you know, as I say, even the UN officials in Kabul have, have, have explained to anyone who will listen that that is not, that is not, all the all the civilians being killed it is a tiny fraction of them and yet um you know the the western media have have been taking those figures as an actual mm -hmm. estimate of death throughout this entire time so so yes these humanitarian crises are killing hundreds of thousands of people in both countries mm -hmm. afghanistan and yemen but the number of Afghans and Yemenis actually being killed, having their bodies ripped apart. Is much by, greater. Is, yes, by cluster bombs right. and other kinds of bombs is, yes, definitely, definitely much greater. Nick Davies, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate it, and we look forward to having you back. Me too. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Afghanistan facing total collapse as Biden refuses to release central bank assets. Quote, if the Afghan economy is not resuscitated, the severity of the current humanitarian crisis will only deepen with dire consequences for life and limb of ordinary Afghans, warned one aid group. What's behind this U.S. action and who will be held accountable for these preventable deaths? For insight, we turn to our next guest. He's the host of the podcast, The Left is Dead, James Carey. As always, James, welcome back. Always good to be back. So international aid groups are warning that Afghanistan is on the brink of complete collapse as the Biden administration and European governments refuse to release the war-torn nation's central bank reserves, depriving the economy of critical critical funds as millions face poverty and starvation. Uh, James, do you see this as a as a, a backhanded way of trying to allow for the development of a circumstance for the United States to go back into Afghanistan? Well, I don't know about back into Afghanistan. I don't think that I don't know that there's a popular will for that, but I do think that we're seeing like we see everywhere else, right? Any country that wins, quote unquote, with the United States, whether it's Venezuela doesn't elect their, you know, puppet president, Iran doesn't take whatever deal they try and shove down their throat. They will try and, you know, Afghanistan, the people of Afghanistan happen to be being punished for living there and winning. You know, the U.S. couldn't afford this occupation anymore. So now the only thing left to do is completely lock them out of the global market as a way to punish them and destroy the country, which normally is aimed at regime change. But I don't think there's any goal of regime change even possible within Afghanistan because we spent 20 years trying to do that and the same people came back. You know, the interesting thing here is that a big one of the big huge issue here for a country like Afghanistan is um, to have the finances, the money to buy food. And Joe Biden has like seven, eight billion dollars of their money and refuses to get uh, number one. He's giving half of it away. And number two, refuses to give it back to the people in Afghanistan. There's not even a solid reason why there's not like a well, there's something they did. There's just they're not getting it. So the U.S is at the, um, the, really, the two worst humanitarian disasters on earth right now are in Yemen and Afghanistan, and the United States' hand is all over both of them. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. And the money, I mean, we see this all the time, whether it's the U.K. refusing to give back Venezuelan gold or uh, Ashraf Ghani running out of Afghanistan with bags of money. Um this has always been a punishment where it's, if you're not a puppet, we won't give your cash back. And to first, to give half of this money to 9-11 victims or whatever is ridiculous because the Taliban didn't do 9-11. Afghanistan, the Afghan people didn't do 9-11. We know who did it, and they're helping create the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, Saudi Arabia. You know, And I think that freezing funds like this is now just a very common tool to... Unfortunately, a lot of these places have to keep their money in Western banks or they're forced to in the case of an occupation. And the U.S. is going to weaponize this more and more as more places try and pull away from our economic, you know, our economic influence. But I don't see what the gain this does for Afghanistan. I think this makes a place more dangerous than it would have been had we just allowed the Taliban to take over. It's not that the Taliban are, you know, schoolboys or anything. 
but I think this is an alternative that would be better than complete lawlessness. And in order to keep it from being completely lawless, the Taliban needs some money to maintain infrastructure, and we just will not let that happen. We are, again, punishing them for winning. You know, you mentioned you don't see the U.S. will for the United States going back into Afghanistan, and I agree with you, but I don't know that that in and of itself is a reason for the United States not to try to create a circumstance to justify further engagement in the so-called war on terror. I'll just make that point. Here's one of the ironies that I see in your saying that, you know, the United States could no longer afford its engagement in uh, in Afghanistan. The irony to me is one of the reasons why the U.S. went into Afghanistan in the first place was to try to make Afghanistan Russia's Vietnam. And the United States winds up getting bogged down for 23, 25 years, a couple trillion dollars, and we have absolutely nothing other than uh, a negative bank account to show for it. Yeah, it was a longer Vietnam than our Vietnam. <laughs> there you go. You know? Yeah, uh, yeah. there isn't much to show for it. And I think that's that's always the embarrassment with the U.S., right? They don't like coming up empty-handed, whether it's an ally or a nemesis or a country they occupy. They don't like coming up empty-handed. They don't like having 20 years. And again, a, a voting populace, which has clearly rejected this, you know, as far as Trump's sort of isolationism in the campaigns and stuff like that. And Biden actually pulling out, I think, was pretty popular among average people, not the media class for sure, but the average people. And I think that the U.S., as far as the leadership goes and the media class goes, they don't like seeing us leave empty-handed. They don't like seeing us lose. And again, especially with Ukraine and everything like that, people have blamed the incidents of Ukraine on Joe Biden showing weakness in Afghanistan and the Middle East or whatever. Um, they don't want to see the U.S. back down because they think the moment we back down, there's somebody bigger and worse waiting to come for us. But there's nobody on the planet that really fits that description unless you think China's coming for us, which I don't see that happening anytime soon. Well, yeah. And, and if you look right now, what's happening, the neocons in Washington, D.C. are the most dangerous people on Earth and probably some of the da- da- most dangerous people that have ever inhabited this Earth in that, you know, number one, they're recklessly risking nuclear war. But look at their policies. Their policies are about to turn clearly are about to turn the European continent into an impoverished dystopian wasteland based on the sanctions. We're not going to be real far behind, but we're heading for a recession thanks to their uh, uh, thanks to their policies. They're doing it in Yemen. They're doing it in Afghanistan. So our the people uh, and then add um, uh, Venezuela just recovering. Cuba is struggling as a result of our policies. Syria went through the dirty war for years. When you look at the impoverishment and disaster that the, that the neocons in Washington, D.C. have wreaked worldwide and that are coming home now to revisit us in the EU, it is stunning to consider how these people could still be in power. Yeah, it is fascinating. I think that people talk about, you know, the Great Reset, and I think that kind of happened already in the 80s, the financialization of the economy, right? And since then, people have suffered under these dirty wars, these sanctions, and all types of things all all along the Global South. Everywhere in the Global South has suffered from some type of U.S. intervention, some type of scarcity, some type of, you know, chaos caused by us. And I think as you're seeing capital running out of markets to extort, running out of... Pre- 
pressure points to put, you know, to exert on, you're seeing the effects of the globalized economy finally start to come to the actual empire's metropole itself. You know, these are factors that the rest of the world has been dealing with since we have been in charge. Either they played the game or they lost out. And now that we're not making the rules of the game anymore, we're starting to lose out. And I think that for a long time, the United States has felt safe because they don't feel the effects of anything. I mean, the war on terror, even that, is it's all borrowed money. You know, it's not like we saw that necessarily happening to us here. But now with things like the supply chain being broken and half of, you know, Europe's wheat suddenly not available and things like that and gas is another thing, you know, um, I think that we're finally seeing the results of our economy worldwide come home. And I, I don't think the United States, people of the United States are going to be very happy with it. The Europeans already aren't happy with it. And I'd say they haven't been for a good decade or so. Another irony here to me is, and Garland mentioned Yemen, and we're now talking about Afghanistan, is that these are two problems, as Garland said, not only created by the United States, but could now very easily be solved by the United States. And it's that either unwillingness or it's the inability to see the very simple solution here that it's the problem in Yemen is easier to solve than the problem in Afghanistan because uh, natural famine is, is something you can't you can't prevent, but you can provide the sustenance to enable the people affected by this to be able to withstand the crisis. And at the end of the day, you make more friends than enemies. Yeah. I mean, Yemen, we could stop it tomorrow if we stop giving the Saudis everything they need. Exactly. But Afghanistan, I think that, yeah, there's no, what move do we have to be humanitarian? You know, what motivation do we have to be humanitarians at this point? The United States. Oh, I have the answer to that question. They're called human beings. The people are human beings. I mean, we have that motivation. We do. (laughs) Right. But our leaders don't, you know, and because I, I don't think they see there's any benefit in it for them because they don't want Say they do this and what? Well, because well, Raytheon, Raytheon and the other military equipment manufacturers, they don't make blankets, they don't make bottled water, and they don't make other foodstuffs that would be very beneficial in helping people make it through right. make it through famine. And, and to what? Put us in good standing with the world again? You know, we don't care. We never, we've never cared about what the world thinks of us. And I don't think that that's going to change now. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, as terrible as it is to say, the American people don't think about Afghans that often and what we did there, even though it was 20 years. People don't reflect on it. And uh, the U.S., I don't think they care if they have international goodwill because we've truly never really had it before, at least not, you know, completely, whether it was the Cold War, maybe for like a brief minute afterwards. And then everybody started to realize what globalized capitalism looked like. But I don't think we're, we're interested in developing goodwill with anyone unless, you know, when we get very desperate, maybe we go to Iran and talk to them about getting their oil or Venezuela. But we're not interested in goodwill for goodwill's sake, because that doesn't have a monetary value to it. Like you said, it doesn't benefit Raytheon. It doesn't benefit Boeing. Nobody gets any payout from delivering aid and looking like we may have an altruistic bone in our body like as we say we do all the time. 
I think uh, the nature of empire is uh, narcissistic and psychopathic, and there's no empathy anywhere. Uh, Real quick, we got about a minute and a half. I do think that this reordering of the global economics, if we get through this okay, will set up a situation where a lot of these other countries then have options and the U.S. won't be able to punish people with sanctions. Yeah, I think so, too. I think that um, as far as it goes, China is going to be the one to come up. You know, we saw the uh, shift in Saudi Arabia deciding to value some oil trades in Iran. Um, We see Russia kind of really leaning into going with China as far as a separate economic system. And I think that we're going to see a rise of that more because people are going to de-dollarize, I suppose. And I think it's going to be gradual, but it's going to place us not at a subpar level, but we're going to be on the level with other nations. We're going to be equals whether we'd like to or not. And, you know, as we get out here, you mentioned uh, or we mentioned Raytheon and, and Boeing, but there is Cargill. There is Archer's Daniel Midland. There is agribusiness in this country. The agribusiness could boom incredibly in trying to help fill this void, whether it be in Afghanistan, whether it be in Yemen. But unfortunately, I guess their lobbies Aren't strong, aren't as strong as uh, as the military industrial complex and agriculture industrial complex. Maybe is what I guess is what we need for this. I would J- say they want subsidies to do anything, so they probably well. Sure, those. sure. J- James Carey, they, uh, well, we subsidize the military industrial complex. Why not subsidize food for the world? We James Carey, I got to get out. Thanks, man. Appreciate it, folks. You've been listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host Garland Nixon. We hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 